0: credit to a lot of our teams. Like in Queenstown, for instance, we really only ne- needed three or four pilots for helicopters. And we had seven and those guys made the decision themselves to share the business. So instead of just having four on five or six days a week, they all went down to three or four days and then that was in the very grim times and then we just built back up so we were fortunate when the borders opened we'd prepared for that and we had started in a measured fashion starting to build the business back up to be ahead of the game
1: kia ora and welcome to another episode of the tourism chat show i'm your host michelle caldwell and i'm really excited to introduce our guest for today But before we jump into that, I just wanted to remind you all that we have a new Instagram profile. It is at the Tourism Chat Show. So jump over there and please follow us for all of the latest news and behind the scenes glimpses at what we're doing. And of course, if you're enjoying the show, it really helps if you leave a five star rating or review on the app that you're tuning in on. So please make sure you do that too. Now, as I mentioned, we have a fabulous guest joining the show today. It's someone who really needs no introduction, but let's welcome him in, Mark Quickfall from Totally Tourism. Kia ora, Mark.
0: Hello, Michelle, and nice to join you.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of your long career in tourism, let's allow our listeners to get to know you a little better. So, I have a quick question for you, and hopefully, it's not too much of a tricky one. But, can you tell us your favorite tourism experience in New Zealand and why?
0: That has caught me off guard. So I'd be foolish not to promote one of our own operations. But I've got to say, over everything I've ever done, the, the one activity I really enjoy and always have is going out skiing. Mm. You know, which we operate. And a good day out heli skiing, it's very hard to beat. We're a helicopter drops on a ridgeline, the helicopter disappears, you look out over the mountain ranges, it's a very quiet, and then suddenly Downhill, where you go in the powder snow. And, you know, it suits all anybody that's an intermediate to a VAR skier. And it's just a fantastic day out.
1: Yes, yes, certainly. Having worked in the ski industry for a little while, I do know how much of a bucket list activity that is for so many people. And everybody raves about it. It's quite a special experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's part of it going out and seeing people that come with us. It's just fantastic in New Zealand, isn't it? Where it's halley skiing, halley hiking, going down to Milford any of the operations up in the North Island. We're so lucky to live where we do, and Mm -hmm. I think that was one, one positive out of COVID that so many New Zealanders were able to experience their own backyard.
1: Yes, that's very, very true. Now, let's get into the show. We talked a little bit before we came on air about your career history, and I know we don't have a long time with you today, but can you give us the highlights of your career history and how you got started out in tourism?
0: Yeah, well like a lot of New Zealanders back in the late 70s, there used to be the slogan don't leave town until you send the country and I decided to do that, I was ready to travel overseas but before I went I thought I'll travel down south, I was born in, and uh, grew up in Auckland and came to Queenstown and thought well I'll just spend uh, some time here which I did and like a lot of people ended up staying and you know, that was 1979 and uh, fell into tourism by accident. I, Commercial builder coming out of Auckland, yeah. Vance Trade Cert was my full qualifications and didn't really apply to tourism. But I got down here and decided to spend, like I say, a winter period and got a job as bar manager up at Skyline. And then thought, no, I need to go. I need to get overseas. And just before I left, I there's a job advertised, at shot over jet, which I applied for and was lucky enough to get selected. And that was in the very early days of tourism, and particularly in Queenstown, it was only a small village. So it was a lot of fun, you know, driving the boats, that shot over, connecting with a bunch of younger people in town, and it was a great, it was a great, great start in, in the tourism career.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and what happened after that?
0: Well, I continued at Shotover for a couple of years, and then they had a second attempt at going away, and a company, uh, Sunbeam Tours, Auckland-based, that used to do offshore trips for senior people, and I was offered a role there as a tour escort. So off I went traveling the world, hadn't, hadn't really experienced myself. And uh, so I was learning on the job and uh, fortunate enough to travel to the States, Mexico, and then on to Europe and and throughout Asia and used to do a bit round the world trips. And then in the off season, I came back, fell back to uh, Queenstown and went back to driving jet boats and then started my own jet boat company Mm -hmm. and operated that for, I guess would have been about 14 years, 14 or 15 years. And identified that to be a little bit different, we needed to add other activities with the jet boat. So develop Queenstown combos and put together like the rafting and the jet boat and all the helicopter jet boat trips and so forth and build that business up. And and through the relationship with what was Alpine Helicopters back then and morphed into the helicopter line, I got involved with them in tourism. And anybody knows Tourism Holdings Limited? at the end of a public company and, and it was fun years because it was certainly a very entrepreneurial organization. And there's a bunch of people that come out of smaller businesses and, and really just got on with the job and developed that into what it ended up into today. So, and like large organizations that went from being very small entrepreneurial, then grew and got to be quite a large corporate and then divested of some of their smaller businesses. Mm. And that was a great opportunity. So in '99, I ended up buying some of the South Island operations and formed Toody Tourism. Mm. And Toody Tourism operated in the aviation, the marine, and adventure tourism sectors. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cool. And your day-to-day involvement—are you still very much in the business on a day-to-day at the moment?
0: Yes, absolutely. So what happened in 2011? Skyline Enterprises decided or chose to purchased Totally Tourism, which they did. And so it's been a very interesting time since then. So 2011, I sold out of Totally Tourism, but went on the board of Skyline. Mm -hmm. I was a director there. And then in 2014, became chairman. And that was, once again, an interesting period of my tourism career because suddenly I'd moved from hands-on operations to more of a governance role. Mm. But even with that, with Skyline, uh, just circumstances the CEO leaving I did spend quite a bit of time in both governance and, and, executive roles. 2019 Skyline decided to divest out of Tokyo tourism. I'd really enjoyed my time there, but decided I probably, my preference is to be more hands-on down in the trenches. So I purchased Totally tourism back. I was going to step back a little bit, but like most people in the world, then we had the events of the, the pandemic when COVID came along. And I think that tipped everybody's lives upside down. So I really had no choice but to jump back in boots and all and go into survival mode with the business. You know, we're 200 staff and like everybody worked extremely hard over that period for one, to for the business to survive and two, since then, to rebuild it.
1: Mm. Yeah, it certainly has been a challenging couple of years. But if you think back through your entire career, what are the big changes that you've witnessed in your career in the tourism industry? How do you think the industry has evolved over that time?
0: Yeah, a lot more sophisticated. When I first started the jet boat company, for instance, I'd park the boat on the lake, I'd go pump fuel at the local petrol station, and then if there's a trip, I'd shoot away and do it. Yeah. Well, you couldn't do that now to start up. There's a lot it's a lot more sophisticated You know, channels to the market, a lot more sophisticated. You've got trade online, direct-to-consumer, Compliance is, is a lot more stringent. Regulation is a lot more stringent, particularly in, in some of our areas of aviation. You've got to have a lot of systems in place. So if, if you know, if I look at typical tourism business, you've got general management, HR, finance, sales, marketing, all the systems now. And that's one of the things we did through COVID. We really revisited and reset our whole business. We looked mm-hmm. at all the enterprise systems, a new payroll system, and to the customers is a big one for us, so the external customer service and internal, we've got the trader trying to book our product, we need to make it easy for them. So, yeah, look, a lot of changes, and as I was saying, in 1979, Queenstown, as an example, was a small village. The tyranny of distance has changed because we now have got direct flights to New Zealand, whereas people used to have to row a boat to get here, they can now jump on the plane in 24 hours, out doing some great activities. So that's changed. And also the world. I mean, a lot of people now got more, the ability to travel a lot more. So that's changed. And the focus has changed. When I first arrived here, it was just about fun. Now there's a lot more considerations, you know, sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. And the pressures on infrastructure, which we all all know about. Yes, Mm. Mm. So some dramatic changes.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned some of those things that you worked on through COVID in terms of the technology connectivity Mm. to customers. Was Mm. that something that you had in your plans or did you use the downtime, I guess, through COVID as an opportunity to look at how you would come out the other end stronger?
0: Uh, Both actually. So I think anybody in the tourism business knows it's so important to be able to connect with your customer easily or for them to connect with you, you know, we're all impatient these days. We all carry devices and we want to be able to do it instantly. So there's that area. But but you're right, we did take that opportunity for, for a couple of reasons. It was one for the staff's sake, because it was a lot quieter and it was great for them to have those projects to, if anything, to provide that focus. You know, they were tough times and one of, you know, I've got to give credit to a lot of our managers and teams. We had, uh, like I say, 200 old people. What And I'm very fortunate, I've got a very supportive wife with my business, Jackie, as you know, Jackie's was in tourism for many years, and we made a very conscious decision that we want to look after the people who had been with us for a long, long time. Two reasons, there was a bit of selfish reason too, because we had a lot of intellectual property, and we didn't want to see that disappear. So we decided we just had to reinvest in the business or keep feeding the meter to keep everybody or as many people as possible employed. And then give them some, I suppose, focus and hope that we were going to get through this. Because I think like everybody, we had no idea through COVID. And I was just reminding myself that it was if I had two bad years or one bad year out of 40, that was good. But that suddenly turned into two and we weren't sure it was going to be three or four. But, you know, isn't it wonderful that we've all come through and that we're seeing tourism now rebound?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, none of us knew what was going to happen. And I think if we look back to that time in March 2020, a lot of us were saying, oh, we'll be back in six months or we'll be back in eight months. And then that just kept extending and extending. So it is nice. I mean, how have you found the process of coming out of COVID and having visitors arrive? I know there's been some pressures in Queenstown, but as a business, how have you found that scaling up again and
0: so yeah. quickly? Yeah, not so bad because we kept the base uh, structure in place. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, we've got some like, number of pilots, we've increased quite, you know, in in the last 12 months. And we've actually got quite a few people returning to Totally Tourism, whether it be helicopter pilots or even frontline people that moved out of industry, but come back. And like I said, we did, earlier on, I said, credits a lot of our. our teams like in Queenstown for instance we really only needed three or four pilots for helicopters and we had seven and those guys made the decision themselves to share the business so Mm -hmm. instead of just having four on five or six days a week they all went down to three or four days and then that was in the very grim times and then we just built back up so We were fortunate when when the borders opened, we'd prepared for that and we had started in a measured fashion starting to build the business back up to be ahead of the game. But it was tough, you know, if you think about how quiet it was, particularly like our West Coast operations, Prans and Fox, Mm. I'd go over there to visit and the towns were empty. And I know uh, some of the other business owners, one uh, in the hospitality, they went from 55 staff down to five. So to rebuild to bring in shares and whatever. And then they had the challenges of the regulations not keeping up to what was required. And I suppose that's one of the disappointing things is that as we try to rebuild, that people just haven't really recognized that businesses are coming out of survival mode and suddenly the focus is, the focus that has been put on other areas that aren't assisting those businesses and look, I think we all get it. We need to redesign tourism, but we need to actually survive first. Yeah. And I think some of those barriers to getting on with the business, uh, and, and even now I see it, and I think we all agree, like sustainability is important, right? But it's got to be balanced with everything goes. You've still got to get revenue. You've still got to have HR. You still have to have safety. And actually, at the end of the day, people want to come and have fun. They want to get away and go on holiday and have a good time. And, and I, I hope we don't, as an industry, lose sight of that. Mm. So it's a balanced approach. And um, and I think evolution will take care of some of those concerns around tourism, whether we're over-trading or not. And I think operators have that in mind anyway because it's a very competitive business. So you need to be leading that charge and be seen to be sustainable. Mm.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess it's a good point, actually, because part of sustainability is obviously financial sustainability as well. And I think a lot of the time we get caught up in just the environmental sustainability side of that without thinking through all of the ramifications of what that means for the longevity of these businesses Mm -hmm. and not saying that environmental sustainability isn't important of course it is but as you say a lot of us are thinking about that naturally because we're not I mean we all make money off our natural landscapes and off all of those beautiful assets that we have in New Zealand so the last thing that we want to do is destroy them so we can't take people there anymore right
0: you're right, Michelle. And the financial one is an important one. And a good example is Milford at the moment. The type of aircraft we used to operate is improved. So to, to go out and we agreed with the Department of Conservation 10 years ago to go out and invest in 2 million US dollar aircrafts so over the, the larger, quieter and more sustainable. The next step is now to look at some alternative fuels for that. Mm -hmm. So I think those things are going to happen regardless. You know, we're looking to build a new boat for Milford. We certainly investigated electric capabilities. It just isn't going to work for Milford. So Mm -hmm. we will put in the right engines and build a boat that in the future, if it was possible, we can convert to that. So I think those things are happening anyway, but I, I think we've got to be very careful that all our energy and focus doesn't go into that one area and we forget about the other important areas so I think it's a balanced approach.
1: Mm. So while we're on the topic of Milford Sound, I'd be mm. really keen to hear your opinions on what's happening down there and the discussions that are going on around access to Milford Sound and the park and ride options and yeah. all of that. Where do you sit in that? Like, Do you feel that it is suffering from over-tourism at the moment? Do we need to do something? What? Where are you? Yeah.
0: We we do need, and actually we've segued in this, which I probably should have avoided, but I will say because I actually chair Destination Milford Sound. I don't know if you're aware of that. So that organisation represents all the commercial tourism operators down there. Right. I'll be blunt. I'm going to say we're a little bit bent out of shape on this because when we have government-funded organisations come in and say that all the tourism operators are simply abstractors, that's an insult, and particularly when that was table during COVID and it was hard times anyway, but put that to one side, we are supportive of having a robust plan for Milford, but our frustration is simply this, the investment into Milford has been by the operators, not, so in some ways, the government have actually dragged the chain a little bit. So if you look at Milford, the electricity and all the infrastructure, a lot of it is provided by the operators currently. Majority operators in Milford have actually operating on expired concessions, so we have no security of tenure. So if we want to go and improve boats and coaches and planes and everything else, how do we go to the bank and say, can you lend us some more money when we have no security of tenure? You don't need to be too bright to know that. Operators will not be able to operate in the national park in a sustainable way unless they have. We had 800,000 people going to Milford Every year we run a survey that's independent through Otago University that is coming back, and the satisfaction levels in the 90s. Wow. So that's one issue. So that's good. So if you kind going, of, we get back to the, that many people going to Milford, what is what is a better arrangement to, for them to be hosted in a safe, sustainable manner by tourism operators, or we just have a free-for-all? So it needs to be in a coordinated manner. So, look, we're we're in support of of having a robust plan, but I don't think we need to spend $20 million of taxpayers' money to work out what needs to happen next week. We know what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. We have actually drafted our own plan and provided that to whoever cares to listen. But I can tell you that since I've chaired Destination Milford Sound, we've been through quite a number of ministers, whether it be conservation, tourism, et cetera, and it's actually fine. And the government officials, uh, I can say so, we've got a good relationship across the board, so it's not a complete train wreck. Mm. But if you said to me now, Mark, who's actually leading this for Milford, I would struggle to say. I'll give you. I'll pass on the contact details. So our frustration is that while we the talk and all the who is going on, there's not a lot of Dewey. So. Yeah, we we just want to see our concessions that like all the aviation operators will be concessions expired. Down there for the terminal, for the boat operators, they're all expired. Now you, you know, and we, we're in conversation with the Department of Conservation. I have some sympathy for them because they are guided by legislation. But I think Milford is a good case study for tourism in general for New Zealand. And so there's you you did ask a very leading question there. That's the answer. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, that's great to have that background, actually, because you don't always hear what's actually going on down there. And it sounds like the trust needs to be given back to the operators to almost, you guys are there, you're operating, you can see some of the challenges, you can see what needs to be done. And if they trusted you a little bit more to build that plan, obviously, we might be a little bit further ahead rather than expensive consultants.
0: Yes, yeah, Hmm.
1: Oh, very yeah. good. Well, let's let's move away yeah, from, from the... a <laughs> you, You've had quite an extensive governance career and we've obviously just touched on one of those roles. What does good governance in tourism mean to you? Well, not just
0: tourism, I think governance. What's really important, because you have governance, sets a strategy along with the executive and then executive execute that. So what's really important is there's a very strong relationship, but whether, whether it's a council or a business, So a a very good relationship between the chairman and the CEO because they are going to lead the board and then an executive. So that's paramount. And then having a very, I suppose, everybody around the board table agreeing to the strategy and then focusing on it. You're not going to agree on every point. And and that's that's the idea of a chair is to actually pull out of everybody around that table their views it's a difficult job being a chairman or a mayor of a council or whatever to hold it together and keep everybody pointing north so that's that's a key two key elements is really having very good working relationships understanding and having that professional courtesy both ways and getting the board all on the same page mm-hmm. and then bring the executive along and leading the executive and having those those conversations too and and identifying the challenges ahead. And And I think we've all now learned and experienced that whether it's a company plan or a plan for a council or government legislation, all the plans need to be agile because the world moves a lot quicker and we can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think we just learned those lessons in the last five years. But you've got to have a plan.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that is also having that plan, but almost in the back of your mind, having that what if kind of scenario. It's like that risk analysis, isn't it? Because Absolutely. I've spoken a lot on the podcast about the fact that not a lot of us had a plan for complete border closures. We might have wow. had a pandemic in another part of the world that was affecting a certain market coming into New Zealand, but none of us had really thought about, hey, what what if we can't operate tomorrow?
0: Yeah, and it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's very. It was surprising and pleasing that when you looked across the, the, the whole tourism industry, the amount of businesses that managed to survive it, and you've got to give credit to a lot of people, uh, owners, managers, staff. Uh, boy, they were tough times, and I remember coming to work here one day during lockdown. We've got the helicopters, and we started them to keep them, keep them current, yep. and wandering around. Everything was parked up, and there's a tin can. Blowing down Lucas Place, and I thought, wonder how long this is going to last. So, for for everybody, and it wasn't just tourism, it was all businesses. I was very fortunate to go away in May to Croatia on a cycling trip and with a bunch of other people I didn't know and from all different industries. And it, it really did hit home how it impacted on, it didn't matter what you're in or what you're doing, the impact of it. And yeah, so. And I think um, a lot of people need to be very proud of how they got through to the other, uh, the other side.
1: Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And we've talked a lot about some of the challenges, but is there a particularly memorable moment from your career that has taught you a valuable lesson?
0: No, look, I've been fortunate. I've worked with some of the pioneers of tourism. You know, I go back uh, and uh, names that are, have, uh, people, some people will recognise, you know, Don Spari, uh, Graeme Gosney with the THL, Trevor and Heather Gamble at shot over the jet, Peter Lowry with uh, uh, ITOC in the day. So there's been many, many. So I've learnt from all those people. And I think that, that, that a lot of those people, is, it was pretty evident. They had a, a, a growth mindset. They were positive. They look for solutions, not problems. Yeah, so those are the, probably the lessons I've taken away. And also, quite often it was about fighting the war rather than winning the battle. It's fun. You know, you turn up a business, it's either in your DNA or not. Uh, business is, is hard. You know, being in business is, is tough going. And particularly, as you asked earlier, there's a lot more sophisticated, a lot more dynamic. You've got to understand so many more things when you own a business, whether it be HR, employment law, Resource consenting, and and the one thing I have learned: the further you get up the ladder, the more grind you get to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, but if you look, and that that's a fun, it's a great industry, isn't it? And I think, yeah, as I remember the, the Facebook page you put up during the pandemic, mm. you know that brought people together and kept them connected. And that's the one thing the tourism business has been very good at. Even though we compete, we do come together as an industry. And Milford is very much an example of that, you know, none of our operators down there are just saying, I'm going to try to, to edge out an advantage here. We're all going out and saying what's best for New Zealand, what's best for the tourism industry. And if we get that right, then it's going to be good for our individual companies. And that that's very much, you know, I think we're all nervous. We're going to lose that through people leaving the industry, but pleased to say, it's nice to see a lot of those people coming back. or or having
1: survived. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm with you. I was really fearful for the loss of some significant tourism businesses. And I know not everybody made it through, but I'm also surprised and really impressed by how many did get through those tough times and the commitment that the owners made and obviously the staff too but it's the owners who have got their hands in their pockets to continue funding and yes we had a bit of government support but that was nothing what like what we needed to keep businesses afloat I mean it helped definitely but yeah there was a lot of commitment there from owners so yeah really great to see
0: and now I'd like to think there's an opportunity for those people that did put their hands in their pockets to now be rewarded and and I think we will be unless mm. something. And towards happens, you know, we're going through a period now. We've got high inflation and whatever. But the, the numbers coming back, you know, I think we're sitting around sixty-five percent of pre-COVID arrivals on average, and mm. they'll reach eighty. And I think that a lot of the opera's I talk to, they they don't really not that focused on going back to pre-pandemic when we we're all stretched a little bit like a rubber band. They're happy to get back to a level that's, you know, we use that word sustainable, manageable, and and sensible. And I think that's what we should be aiming for.
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Now, you've obviously got a, an extensive history and extensive amount of experience in the industry. What advice would you give to new owner operators who are either considering starting a business or who have just started a business? Because we did see a few new startups through COVID mm-hmm. as well. What what advice would you give to, to those guys?
0: Yep, certainly have a plan. Five to ten-year plan. That's it's imperative. Whether it's tourism, whatever, but whatever you do in life, have a plan. Not everybody's a fan of that. People, some people like just run by chance. But you, you know, if you're in business, you have to have a, a plan. Make sure your funding's correct and look at the return on investment. You know, head rather than heart at times. I mean, I can tell you over my career, I had a little bit of heart at times rather than head. You know, you do need to get a return and understand it's going to be hard work. But as we spoke about earlier. Be prepared to be agile. I cannot recall any business I've started that's gone absolutely to the plan. So you've got to be prepared to change. And sometimes you you might start a product or a business, and it doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to work. So know when to you know when to actually adapt, or or I wouldn't say surrender, but there's no point continuing on whether if it's not going to be be rewarding. And you can do all the research in the world, but quite often the market's going to tell you in the end. And we've launched products in the past. We thought are going to be real winners, but they haven't been. Others have just been, yeah, they have. So read the market too, because the market's always changing and we've seen the markets come and go. So you've got to redesign your product to suit the market. And this this last winter was very interesting for us. We, the heli-skiing, we saw a big up. Lift with Chinese uh, heli skiers, which we've never seen before. So, you know, right now we're designing for next winter, and what are we going to do to better cater for them? We already host a lot of China, or have in the past, and 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 are again. So, we we're fortunate we have processes in place, and also staff who are Chinese speaking, and so that's helpful. But that, that's just one example. If you had said to, to us last summer, you will have a big uplift in Chinese heli skiers. I I
1: have no idea. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It is important to keep an eye on those trends. And I think another way that I've found quite useful through the years is understanding that customer feedback and really delving deep into that as well, isn't it? Because yeah. sometimes there's just a little piece of gold and something that mm-hmm. they'll say. And it's all very easy to look at a dashboard and say, yes, we're sitting in a high NPS score and satisfactions at five stars and all of that kind of thing. But read the verbatim comments to say, it well, actually, there's the nugget. That's that's yeah. something that we could try or you yeah. know fix or whatever it might be
0: absolutely Yep.
1: yeah oh look mark i've really enjoyed catching up with you today i've just got a few more quick fire questions for sure. you and this is just a bit of fun yep. obviously i haven't given you a heads up on this because i just no. want you to answer quickly <laughs> the first the, the things that come into your head but it's just a way that we get to know all of our guests on the show so are you ready for this i am cool okay who's the most famous person in your phone contacts
0: oh gosh Not, I don't know if I can answer that, actually. I don't know if there's anyone specifically that a lot of people know. I look, look, there's a lot in t- right across tourism, to be honest. Yeah, there's quite a few politicians. Yeah, there's wide-ranging yep. business, politics.
1: Yep, nice. And who would play you in a movie about your life? Oh,
0: <laughs> these are all good questions. Um, <laughs> well, if I'm still about, about, I would like to think it would be me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What's your favourite book? Are you reading anything at the moment?
0: Uh, yes, I am. Um, i just picked up the Tina Turner book, which mm. I just about to start reading. Um, I'm reading one on uh, human psychology, which is kind of perhaps a little bit dry. Um, yeah, so no, I, I enjoy I, I enjoy uh, autobiographies and the documentary. I, just, I yep. just watched the David Beckham documentary on Netflix and enjoyed that. So that Type based on people's real lives and understanding what they've been through.
1: Yeah, nice. I haven't watched Beckham yet, but I, it yeah, is on my, yeah. my Netflix list. What's one thing that you would never do again? Hmm.
0: Start a business up the shot over when we had a business called RaceJet that went at 100 kilometres an hour. It was one that was led by a heart, not head. Right. <laughs> there was no real negatives in that, but it was just a good example of as we're chatting about uh, planning, et cetera. No, look, there's nothing, actually. I look back and think, gosh, you no uh, did it pretty good. Oh, perhaps not by Tony Tourism back just before a pandemic, but, you know, you, you can't turn that clock back.
1: No, and you don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, with those sorts of things. Who is your hero? Oh,
0: look, there's many people that I've admired. This might be a strange answer, answer, but the Queen is somebody I always thought, I always held in high regard, Hmm. that she saw the importance of her role and was absolutely dedicated to it. Yeah, so that's one person.
1: Yeah, I think that's a nice one, actually. We often talk about how... She had to stay so stoic in adversity, and mm. she was always there. She was that constant figure, wasn't she? That very yeah, much, yeah. yeah and right. she honoured,
0: she respected the position.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, which absolutely. we don't
0: always see with a lot of the politicians these days, and so forth. And yeah, so she, she certainly always had my, uh, my vote.
1: Yeah, nice. And one that's maybe a little bit easier. Your favourite New Zealand destination. <laughs>
0: Well, New Zealand, you know, it's, it's there's so many great places and they're all different, aren't they? If somebody visiting, it, they come to Queenstown, they've got the buzz if you go to Tianao. You know, I went to Tianao the other Christmas and did uh, three of the walks over a few weeks with some friends and mm-hmm. just outstanding. So I, I think it doesn't matter where you go. I was in Auckland the other week and went for a walk up Mount Albert and great views over the city. So we are blessed. We're, it's a pretty, pretty neat place to live.
1: Yes, we are. I actually used to ask a lot of our guests if they preferred the North or South Island, and then you can imagine how that went down. It basically depended on where they lived. So, yeah, we do understand that obviously you're very loyal to your region, but, yeah, we are blessed all around New Zealand with amazing landscapes and Mm -hmm. and activities and things to do and keep us occupied. So, Yeah. 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 Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been fabulous to catch up and hear everything that you've been doing in your career and and you and I did work together for a little while at THL and I never knew that you were a jet boat driver so that's something I've learned about you today so I really appreciate you sharing your story with us and wish you all the best for the upcoming summer season.
0: Thanks Michelle and it's been a pleasure.
1: And listeners don't forget we'll be back next Wednesday with another very special guest so set your alarms and tune in then. Ka kite.